Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. We also cover craft, the agent hunt, query trenches, publishing industry, marketing, and more. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com. And make sure to visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog for additional interviews, query critiques, and more at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. An accident claimed her daughter's lives. Her husband's life hangs in the balance. And Rue feels like she's losing her mind. A brand new psychological thriller from author Eve S. Evans. Available for pre-order today. As Rue tries to figure out how to be alone in the family home, strange noises, voices, and shadows reveal themselves to her. Questions bubble to the surface. Are Rue's daughters haunting her? Why can't she remember what happened when they went off the bridge into the icy water below? Beneath the Water by Eve S. Evans. Available on Amazon June 29th. We are here today with Jamie Lynn Smith, who is the author of Township, which is a collection of short stories, many of which are set in Appalachia, Ohio. So actually, one of the first things I'd really like to talk about when people talk about Appalachia, I don't think everyone quite understands how large of a swath that actually covers. A lot of people don't really recognize that parts of Ohio are considered Appalachia. Very much so. And you know, the town that I'm from, Mount Vernon, you can see where the Blue Ridge starts. It's kind of cool where the glaciers slid to a stop. If you look one way, you see the plains to the west. And if you look east, you can see that lovely hazy blue line that comes from certain flora and fauna that define the Appalachian region. And of course, Appalachia stretches from Alabama to Maine. Communities like the one that I live in and that I wrote about are also comprised of a lot of migrant Appalachians. I'm kind of considered like second or third generation because my father migrated and then my grandparents migrated from my mother's side of the family. So exists in many places. In addition to being like a physical place, there's also many diverse cultures within Appalachia that exist outside of the actual hills. Where I live, it's very flat. I live in farming country and it's very, very flat out here. I was thinking this morning, actually, I was at the dentist. I'm from a very, very small town. I know you're from Mount Vernon. So much smaller even than that. Like it's it's tiny. We have one stoplight. I was at the dentist this morning and I was in the chair and there were two people in each of the other rooms and I knew who they were. They hadn't seen them walk <laughs> in. We didn't see each other in the waiting room, nothing like that. But I was laying on my chair and just hearing them speak or saying whose graduation parties they were going to this weekend, I was like, yep, and that's so-and-so, and that's so-and-so, and that's so-and-so. Some things that I run across in my writing that people don't necessarily think are plausible, but are very, very true, I'll be around people that are like, well, I grew up in a small town, and it's not true that everybody knows everybody. And I'm like, well, then your town wasn't actually small enough. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you come up with a measure. I never really thought about defining it like that. You know, I'm actually from Centerburg. I was born in Mount Vernon because there is no hospital in Centerburg. We've got maybe one or two more traffic lights than you. I do have measurements that I use when people tell me they live in the country. Mm. I always ask if there's paint on their road. If you have lanes in your road, you don't live in the country. So that's something that I run into when I'm writing about small towns and small town culture is people that have never lived that way 
not quite understanding the way things work, uh, how small things really are, but also an assumption that everyone is like a redneck or a hillbilly right. or a racist or sexist or, you know, any collection of mm-hmm. bad tropes that we get about country life. So what are some things that you've run into or that you experience or that you're kind of writing against, that you're writing to push back about? Oh, I love this question. You know, I'm actually working on a panel proposal for the AWP conference with a couple of other Appalachian writers about this very thing. In it, we talk a lot about queering and dissenting our narratives, you know, in ways that we write about people that you wouldn't expect. There are so many surprises in a small area. And I think the other thing that is unique to Ohio, and I don't know if you recognize this as well, but like, you know, you can't drive there more than 25 miles in any direction and not hit a college. We have colleges everywhere. And so, you know, little ones, big ones, (laughs) technical trade schools. And, And this is a state where you may have kind of racist, rednecky person, but they're living right next to this professor who's working on the cutting edge of the response to COVID-19. And I think that those kinds of experiences are rarer for people in dense cities, often where there's a lot of stratification of wealth and income based on where you live. Those kinds of things I think are really interesting. And also to the idea that people who farm Um, or who are working in trades, like whether it's agriculture, whether it's factory work, that they're not smart. Like that's one of the things that I really push back against. And for me, one of the ways to do that in my writing is through humor. People that are dealing with terrible choices and terrible situations are keenly aware of that. And they're also keenly Mm -hmm. aware and often employ gallows humor to cope. So when I'm writing about terrible things, like the kid who survived his brother's accidental death by autoerotic asphyxiation, I know that there has to be room in the story because there has to be room in life for all of us to breathe. So finding the humor in the surviving brother's religiosity and his struggle to be both smart and cool and popular and sexy and also Christian, because it's really important to him. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that I see every day in small town culture. There's a whole skill set to living out here. If you move from a city, you've got to figure out how do I hook up a generator? Because you're going to need it. You would just not have power sometimes when I was growing up. Like if a storm came through, you lose your power. You are not high on the list of this road that has two houses on it, three houses on it. Right. They're not in a hurry to get to you. One of the things that I run across is men and boys being described or displayed as not intelligent, but also like mean or cruel. One of the things that I uh, really enjoy Somebody shared a TikTok with me the other day, and it was of a guy, and I, I don't know where he was from. It was somewhere in the South, just by his accent. He'd stopped to get a kitten. There was a kitten on the side of the road, and he had stopped. He had just an old work truck, and he'd gotten out of his car, and he was videoing. And he's got, like, on his work boots, and he goes over, and he picks up the kitten, and he's like, Hey there, you need some help, buddy? And he picks him up, and then all of a sudden, there's this, he literally gets swarmed by somebody had dumped 20 kittens. <gasps> He's like, we got a kitten situation, you know? And it's like, he takes all 20 kittens and gets everybody the vet care that they need. That's the men and the boys that I grew up around. And right. I have never seen that man or boy in popular fiction or TV or movies. Anytime you got a guy that's got a backwoods or a country accent, he's an idiot and he's cruel. One of the things that my book deals with indirectly, if you will, I guess, is that kind of toxic masculinity. You know, I think so much about how we 
coach much of the tenderness out of men and boys. I worked, interestingly, in a domestic violence shelter for several years. What are we doing? And I think that as we look at things that are happening with violence across the nation, what is going on with men? And I think about that so much when I'm writing and I see men in terrible terrible situations boxed in by expectations of a culture that rewards violence, that rewards avarice, that rewards the pursuit of power at any cost. From the point of view of, of advocate and as a survivor, I have some limited amount of mercy in my, in my ability to write, sure. um, you know, with great tenderness about the people that are showing that kind of avarice. It brings me to the last story in the collection, right? Love is patient, love is kind. And in it, I think this is the hardest character I've ever written because he, Gene, has committed terrible crimes against children, done his time, and wants to come back and be accepted in society as a good guy. What does it take, right? If there's no redemption for people who they can't change, they can't ever be anything else. Grappling with that and thinking about uh, the ways that country life in particular affects men in rural areas. You're definitely not allowed to be gay. The danger of that. And I write too, because I would like to see the world, you know, that I live in be a better place. Find in it ways for us to exist side by side, whether we love the same people or not. So that's where a lot of my character studies come from. Force myself into the shoes of a character that I really don't like. Writers and readers love a good meet-cute. That moment when something changes, sparks fly, and nothing will ever be the same again. If you love subscription boxes, you will absolutely be obsessed with Meet Cute Box, a membership box for couples that gives you a new themed date night box each month for you and your partner to enjoy. All items are from small local businesses around the world, giving you a new experience each month. Memberships start at $29.99 a month with each box valued up to $100. If you're looking for ways to keep date nights fun and exciting, try Meet Cute Box by checking out meetcutebox.com. Use the code SUMMER20 to get 20% off your first box. Offer expires at the end of June. Visit meetcutebox.com to get your meet cute in the mail. She Podcasts Live will be taking place in Washington, D.C. from October 11th through 14th at the MGM National Harbor. This event is the world's largest gathering of women podcasters and is perfect for audio content creators, storytellers, and more. Attendees can expect to learn from female-identifying-only podcast editors, social media marketers, authors, podcast hosts, and more during this four-day event. She Podcasts Live is committed to bringing a diverse and inclusive lineup of speakers with the team working hard in order to make sure those chosen are 50% women of color, LGBTQIA+, or both. They also highlight industry experts as well as leaders, so attendees can get an inside look at what it's like being one on top. She Podcasts Live is a great opportunity for all levels of podcasters. Register now and join us in D.C. this October at ShePodcastsLive.com. And use the code WWPF to get $50 off your ticket. 
and I want to talk about writing short stories because Township is a collection of short stories. I'm a novelist and I have novels published. I personally find short stories to be harder than writing a novel. Everyone says that. And right now I'm working on a novel. I, I didn't set out to be a short story writer. I really didn't read that many of them. And I became a huge fan of them when I got into my MFA program at Ohio State. And that was reading short stories and writing short stories for workshops became my life for like three years. I, I went to graduate school thinking I would write a novel. Like I had an idea. I'd done a ton of research. I just hadn't had the time to dedicate to it that I wanted. And so that's why I was pursuing the degree. And then in pretty short order, I realized that I didn't know how to write a story, put the novel aside and just started working on craft and on my structure. When you have a novel, you can be really forgiving. If you've got a sentence that isn't a Pulitzer Prize winner, it's fine if it propels the story forward. <laughs> In a short story, you have just a few pages. So you have to be so efficient. And I found that it was a great exercise for me. Many of these stories were part of my thesis, my MFA thesis. I really had to spend a lot of time in a bunch of small worlds and learn how to be much more efficient in my writing and in character building and world building. I have so enjoyed writing short stories and having my art go in a direction I never imagined. I'm really surprised this is my first book. Really thought it would be a novel. And so I think sometimes as an artist, you have to ask, am I so beholden to the idea of what I want to do that I'm not letting other good things happen? I think what happens to me is that I'll have an idea and sometimes I don't know if that idea is a novel or if it's a mm. short story. Oftentimes, because this is what I do for a living, I do have to try to only conceive of ideas or only give ideas my time when I know that it's a novel. But I do love short stories and I love writing them. One of the reasons why... I don't dabble in it more is like I said, I do find it to be particularly challenging. Also for anybody out there, any listeners that do really relish and love that short story format and form, how do you go about writing short stories? If that's what you love or where your talent is and try to make not necessarily a living, but make some money in that arena. The capital side of it is really tricky. I mean, the secret to writing, just get your ass in the seat and write. You're going to write what your heart wants you to write. It's kind of like your sexuality. You're going to love what you love for no reason other than it is what attracts you. If short stories are your thing, there are a fair number of writers who have made quite a tidy living at it. When I'm sending my stories out is I have kind of like a tiered submission system. And I can usually tell when I finish something, if I'm going to be able to sell it or not. But I start with the places that I know pay well for short fiction. If it gets rejected by those places, I'll do a rewrite, move it down the list. I do that in part because sometimes you get feedback that's like, oh, this is great. It's just not right for us right now. And the hard thing with short stories is that if I've written a terrific short story about a working class guy who goes out and rescues 20 kittens and what happens, but they just published a story about someone rescuing kittens in the last issue, and they're not going to take your piece because they don't want to become the magazine that only publishes kitten rescue stories. And there are so many variables in the selection process that I'm a big fan of sending it out, sending it out, sending it out. That's the part where I think you only have success with it if 
you kind of cast your bread on the waters. By sending work out regularly, I've heard that the average is something like one placement for every 30 submissions. There's a combination of rigor, persistence, love that goes into this work. And I think too, I mean, I'm really lucky to have an agent who believes in what I'm doing and helps me try to sell it and get my work out there. So if your agent says to you, I'm not interested in short stories, then you need to find an agent who is like, maybe that person can still represent you on your novel. You don't need to leave them at the altar, but you got to find someone who can work with you on what excites you and what makes you passionate. And so I know sometimes it can feel when you're seeking a rep, like you don't have a lot of choices. You need to dance with whoever asks you, but you always have choices. Giving your work the time that it deserves is the best thing that you can do for it. Maybe about five years ago, I was really trying to get something going, writing for literary magazines, and I was using Submittable, and I was doing all that. And the amount of research that was required for me to figure out where my work was going to fit and doing the reading that I had to be doing to understand like how each magazine works and everything like that. It was a lot of work. And I don't know that people understand that the amount of work that you put into understanding the publishing industry from the side of someone as a novelist, you almost have to put in the same amount of work to understand the literary magazine and the short story market because it's its own beast. Oh, it definitely is. I mean, I think one of the best things that ever happened for my work was I taught a literary publishing class a couple of years ago. And I hadn't taught that particular subject before. I felt like I knew a lot and it was great to be able to share what I did know, but it was what was more important was what you talked about, getting that coherent sense. I will send this to Lit Mag, for example, but I'm not going to send it to Story because I know this editor, it's not really going to be their jam. It is a ton of work and it's the same legwork you do in prospect research when you're getting ready to send out a novel or when you're looking for an agent. I subscribe to Poets and Writers, so I'm always looking in the back at the contests and the things that are coming up and submission guidelines and uh, submission windows opening. So what would you suggest to someone that wants to maybe dip their toes into that part of the publishing arena? What's a good like first base to start looking and beginning to understand Mm -hmm. that market? You know, I think poets and writers is a great place to start. I think that joining AWP and reading um, the Writer's Chronicle, the AWP magazine is another great place to start. One of the things I did my first year in graduate school, because I really knew nothing about literary fiction. I I really didn't even know what I didn't know. And I felt so dumb and uninformed in class that somebody mentioned poets and writers to me. So I went to their website and they have a wonderful resource, which is a list of literary magazines. I made a spreadsheet for myself. I got the deadlines in there, what they were interested in, who the current editor was, page length, word count requirements, cover letter, no cover letter. I mean, I had a very detailed spreadsheet. I've shared it with other writers um, when I'm teaching workshops because I, I really think that being open and open sourcing stuff like this, if I can save someone all of that work and all they need to do is go through and update it, then yeah, I'm going to share a resource that I have. But putting that together and maintaining it really keeps me on my toes. I don't do contests very often, like every now and then I do, but I'm not a big fan. I think that you're better off just submitting most of the time, particularly in paying markets. Contests can be good, but they can also be 
in the worst cases, they can be just income generating tools for literary magazines. And I know all lit mags need incomes. I, I work at one and I run another one. So it's I, I get what the economic landscape is like for small publishers. But I also think, especially as I see the fees, the submission fees climb and climb and climb, I can no longer conscientiously direct people to most contests. Now, if contests mm-hmm. are your jam, go check out CLMP, the Center for Literary Magazines and Small Presses. They are fantastic. And they have a list of contests that are vetted, that are not scams. And it's a searchable, sortable list. You don't have to be a member to access it. That's another great resource. And also New Pages which is a small nonprofit based in Michigan. New Pages had listings every month. And very often, those are great resources for emerging writers. You know, if you just are starting out and particularly for young writers, New Pages is a fantastic resource. Absolutely. I did the same thing. I had a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. made up with the dates, the submission dates that they were open, what they were looking for, if it was themes, uh, things like that. I know something that people talk about in the short story world and the small press world, submission fees or reading fees. So when you submit a work or if you're entering a contest, you will be most oftentimes paying a submission fee. And it's something that comes up a lot about whether or not that is acceptable, whether you should be engaging with someone that does charge a reading fee as someone that was coming out of the world of novelists and of hunting for an agent someone is asking for money up front it's a scam like that was just always that was a red flag right yeah but in the short story world it is it is a little bit different so if you could just talk about that for a second simply because a lot of the times there are little magazines or whatever it's like the only way they get income is through something like that so if you could talk about how uh, someone can differentiate between like what would be a legitimate ask or how to i guess sort the apples when it comes to that totally and that's where clmp.org comes in they are fantastic you can also check duotrope another resource to confirm whether or not a contest is legitimate or if a magazine is legitimate. In literary world, I would say probably 80 to 90% of magazines require a small submission fee. And that fee ranges from three to $5. If they're asking you for more than that, I would caution you to not pay it and keep moving unless a subscription is included. That's part of me being a good literary citizen. And I also have kind of a magazine subscription problem and I love getting them and supporting them. And it's also important for me as someone who edits a small magazine to like know what is going on and someone who reads for a larger magazine to know what is going on. So to me, it's all in a day's work. But if you're a writer just starting out, like that would be the range that I think you should feel comfortable with. I would also, and I always encourage my students to submit in groups of 10. So make your list, your 10 dream journals, submit to them, see what happens. Don't submit to 30 places and spend $3 a pop and you wind up getting your heart broken because your story is not ready yet, right? Submit to 10, see what happens. If you get some good feedback saying, hey, we liked this, it's not right for us now, or please send us more work in the future, they mean that, (laughs) like follow up later. But if you get a bunch of just form rejections, then it's time to look at your story. 
Again, contests that don't charge fees, they are out there. And lots of literary magazines have an option where they have like an open submission period where there is no fee. So put that in your little spreadsheet and keep track of it. I also use calendar reminders to tell myself like, hey, don't miss the deadline for plowshares. There are certain magazines that only open for submissions like for one month, once a year. So you don't want to miss that window. So I use technology shouting at me a lot to like keep myself on track. Another red flag for me is when Google is here for a reason, right? Like you can look up a contest and see if they are legit. If they're not posting who the winners are or they're extending their deadline over and over again, I would avoid that contest. Those are always red flags for me. Last thing, why don't you let listeners know where they can find you online and where they can find your collection of short stories, Township. Thank you so much. Uh, You can find me at Jamie Lynn Smith Squarespace. Um, I have a website there and I have a contact form if you want to send me a comment or if you would like my that spreadsheet I mentioned, I will send it to you. Like I said, I'm always happy to share resources. And I'm on social. I'm on Twitter and Instagram usually and Facebook sometimes. And that's um, at Jamie Lynn Writes, J-A-M-I-E-L-Y-N-W-R-I-T-E-S. You can get Township anywhere that books are sold. So I encourage you to go to your local indie bookstore or to bookshop.org. Um, but if you get it from a larger retailer, I'm just going to be so thrilled that you did that, that it's cool. <laughs> writer, writer, pants on fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis music by Jack Corbel. Don't forget to check out the blog for additional interviews, writing advice, and publication tips at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. If the blog or podcast have been helpful to you, or if you just enjoy listening, please consider donating. Visit writerwriterpantsonfire.com and click support the blog and podcast in the sidebar.